It's time to talk about the weather. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. People in the path of Hurricane Ian are still dealing with its aftermath. Before and during the storm, residents rely on forecasts from meteorologists to track the storm and plan to prepare. Many of the tools these forecasters use come from space. We'll chat with meteorology professor Rob Eicher about the space-based tools forecasters use to predict the severity and path of storms like Ian. Then, weather. It's not just an earthly phenomenon. We'll speak with NOAA's Rob Steenberg about forecasting space weather and why forecasting space storms is important to us here on Earth. The weather, whether it's on this planet or beyond. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. Weather forecasters have an enormous responsibility, alerting us to dangers of impending storms. As a Floridian, I know just how important these forecasts are during the tropical storm season. A lot of data goes into forecasting the path and severity of a storm, and some of that data comes from space. Here to talk more about forecasting and the space-based tools used to predict storms is Rob Eicher. He's an assistant professor of meteorology at Embry-Riddle and a freelance meteorologist. Our conversation begins with a simple question. How do you predict the weather? The, the short answer is it's a lot of collecting data on what's happening right now uh, and then feeding that data into computer models that run calculations that help us figure out what's going to change about the current conditions. Rob, where does this data come from? Because, I mean, I can go online and pull up satellite images of, of the Earth. Is, is that where a lot of this data is coming from, is from space? Yeah, a lot of it is coming from space. Uh, space, uh, ground-based radars, uh, some cases just the sensors at all of the airports. You know, every airport has its own automated sensor. Um, but yeah, a lot of it does actually come from space. And what does this data tell tell you? If you're if you're looking at a satellite image, what can you see from this that you can feed into these computer programs that will help forecast these 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 weather patterns or these weather phenomenon? Everything from um, wind speeds at different levels, not just wind speeds, but wind velocity, so speed and direction at different layers of the atmosphere. Obviously, cloud cover, we get that from satellite imagery, um, but we can also get how much moisture is in the atmosphere, what we would call total precipitable water. So basically, if you were to squeeze every ounce of moisture out of the atmosphere, how much would you get? Um, so we can get that from satellites. So that helps us a lot when in terms of trying to figure out how much rainfall we're going to get. Uh, we can also get... Um, Things like sea surface temperatures. Sea surface temperatures are very, very important. Almost all that data comes from satellite data. Um, and we can also get um, uh, estimates on where it might be raining. Radar generally gives us the best, uh, or radar, ground-based radar is generally the best tool for figuring out where it's raining and where it's not raining. But we can use satellites to actually estimate whether the clouds are producing precipitation or not. So everything from precipitation, clouds, winds, wind speed and direction, total precipitable water, uh, sea surface temperatures, all of that we get from satellites. Mm -hmm. And I have to imagine over the years, this data has just gotten more robust or can tell you more and more. I mean, can you walk me through just, you know, how this 
this kind of satellite imagery and, and satellite data collection has evolved throughout the years. And then what did you do before you had access to all of this stuff? I imagine it would have to be far more difficult than it is today. Yeah, that that is part of the problem when you try to do climate change studies is is guess like how many hurricanes were actually out there in the Atlantic that we didn't see. Um and, and same with tornadoes or hail. It's how much was out there that we didn't detect because we didn't have the instruments to detect it. Um, but to, the short answer to your question, or to get more specifically an answer to your question, uh, just as an example, our current weather satellites uh, have three times more spectral information, so three times more um, channels of the atmosphere or wavelengths of the atmosphere that they're actually scanning. So three times more than our previous satellite, four times the amount of spatial uh, resolution. So mapped out on a map, we have can see four times better than we had before and five times faster coverage. So we're getting data five times faster. So we're getting three times the amount of data over four times more area five times faster than we used to. So yeah, it's a huge amount of data increase with every new satellite that launches. Mm -hmm. and, and I've got to imagine that having these these images as, as a layperson like myself is just absolutely stunning. Like I know looking at these images from either, you know, the GOES satellites or, or looking at pictures taken from astronauts in the International Space Station, like you can see just the size of these things. I'm thinking to you know, Hurricane Ian looking at this. I mean, that also has to help play an important role in preparing people for what could be a, a, a very severe storm, right? Having these dra dramatic images coming down from space really puts it into perspective, doesn't it? Oh, it absolutely does. And I, I was just talking to uh, one of my colleagues at Embry-Riddle just the other day, and he was like, he said something to the effect of video gets the public's attention, you know, stunning images get the pu public's attention. And that's absolutely right. If you've got a, everyone can recognize that you don't have to be a meteorologist to recognize a, a hurricane on a satellite imagery and a really well-formed hurricane looks like a buzzsaw. Um, and you see a buzzsaw the size of your state coming right at your state. It's pretty obvious what's going to happen. And yeah, we get that from satellite data. Um, so we get that kind of attention those uh, and those images are quite often the ones that go viral and those are the ones that get people's attention. Mm -hmm. you, you had mentioned that there's all this different spectral data coming from these satellite images. I'm wondering if you can just explain what that is, because I mean, these satellites aren't just taking pictures of, you know, these storms and sending them down. Well, that's all that really I can understand and, and com compute in my head. Uh, I mean, you're getting a lot of data from from these things. What what are some of the things that they actually look at? And then how does that help you make your your, your forecasts for, you know, your, your listeners or your viewers um, that that you are you know, working for? Uh, our, our newest round of, of weather satellites, um, the ones that monitor the United States at least, uh, have 16 bands that they scan through. Two of those are in the visible spectrum. So basically the satellite is just seeing what your eyes would see. Um, you know, in that case, it's basically a fancy floating iPhone. Um, but the other 14 bands are in near infrared, um, microwave, um, deeper into the infrared. So basically we're scanning different wavelengths of the atmosphere uh, to get, 
to better sense exactly what's happening. Some of them are weather related. Some of them are more climate related, like for different wavelengths, we can also measure things like ozone and, and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Uh, but specific to like weather forecasting, uh, the microwave uh, is good because microwave uh, radiation actually will go through the clouds. So if you've got um, a cloud covered area like you would with a hurricane and you want to know what the winds are like at the surface, you need a band of radiation that can see through the clouds. So microwave is good for that. So microwave allows you to see all the way down uh, through the atmosphere so you can get an idea of what the winds are doing and, and what the sea surface is doing as well. The near infrared uh, or the infrared rather is good for measuring temperature. Right. So the sensors that we all got very used to during COVID that measured our temperature from, you know, a couple of feet away just by pointing and clicking. Uh, basically, that exact same sensor is on the satellite and it's measuring the temperature of the atmosphere or the first thing that it sees in the atmosphere. So if it measures something really, really cold, like minus 50, minus 60 degrees Celsius, it's got to be a cloud that's really high up in the atmosphere. So that tells us like how tall the clouds are. Uh, and that's one thing we look for when we're looking at hurricanes is how cold the cloud tops are. The colder they are, the bigger the clouds, which usually means the stronger the hurricane. We also look at wavelengths of radiation that are sensitive to water vapor. Uh, and that helps us sense, as you might expect, how much water vapor is in the atmosphere. And we can also watch and see where that water vapor is moving. So that helps us get an idea of the overall weather patterns, the way winds are flowing, where the jet stream might be, uh, even things like where turbulence might be. All of that comes from just watching where the water vapor is flowing. Mm -hmm. This is tons of data coming in and, and you may not even have the answer to this, but I mean, are there any blind spots still with these satellite images and satellite observations that, you know, a meteorologist like yourself would still like to have their hands on that maybe coming down the pipeline in, in the future, these new generations of satellites might have, I, I guess a better way to ask the question is, is there stuff that you're not able to see still that you would like to get your hands on? We're not able to see directly over each pole. Um, it's not necessarily something we would want for weather forecasting, but for like climate uh, prediction or climate change impacts, that that would be nice to be able to get something right over the pole. But that's uh, from what I understand from, I'm not a rocket scientist, but from what I understand from the rocket scientist, that that is really difficult to do. Um, our regular, we have polar orbiting satellites and geostationary uh, orbiting satellites. The polar orbiting satellites circle around the pole, but they can't get right over the exact North Pole or the South Pole. So they're just uh, kind of off center from the poles ever so slightly, but they circle the earth as the earth rotates underneath. Geostationary orbiting satellites, which are what we use primarily for weather forecasting, uh, they can see an entire hemisphere of the earth at any one given time, but, um, yeah, they don't see either the North Pole or the South Pole. They're watching that one hemisphere, though, continuously. So that gives us a good idea of where things are moving and how quickly they're moving. So that's why we use that primarily for weather. The polar orbiting satellites, we get more uh, res higher resolution data. So they orbit closer to the Earth. They're not as high up uh, in altitude, uh, out in space, I should say. 
And uh, because of that, we get more detail out of the polar orbiting satellites. Um, and that can be helpful if it just so happens that a polar orbiting satellite happens to go over whatever it is you're interested in. Um, but primarily, we use the, the geostationary orbiting satellites uh, for, for weather. Um, short answer, or that's a long answer to your question. Short answer to your question is, I wish we had the resolution that we get from the polar orbiting satellites on our geostationary orbiting satellites. Is that just an issue of altitude at that point there? Cause the geostationary is farther in a higher orbit as opposed to these polar orbiting satellites. Yes, exactly. So the geostationary orbiting satellites are 22,000, 23,000 miles up and the polar orbiting satellites are like three to 400 miles. So we're talking orders of magnitude difference. Uh, and because they're so much closer, we get so much more detail. The geostationary satellites, though, yeah, it's really hard to get that much detail when you're 22,000 miles away. Try taking a picture from 22,000 miles away. Uh, the fact that we can get even half kilometer resolution data from 22,000 miles away is pretty impressive and a big improvement over what it used to be. Um, but yeah, if I could have my way, sure, <laughs> I'd like the... Uh, you know, 250 meter resolution data we get from the polar orbiting satellites. I don't know if I could wrap my head around that. I mean, because the GOES satellites, those are geostationary, right? I mean, and and those images are absolutely incredible. I couldn't imagine having, you know, things that are, you know, even crisper than that. But I mean, that that would be mind boggling, I think, to to someone like me to see that. There is, it just so happened that... Um, Landsat 8, which is a polar orbiting satellite, and I'm trying to pull up the picture while I'm talking to you so I can, um, but Landsat 8 just happened um, to pass over um, Ian right before it made landfall. And from that, we were able to get satellite data of Ian as it was making landfall at- Oh my gosh, that is bonker. I'm looking at it too. <laughs> Holy crap. <laughs> right. Yeah. You can see ripples in the water. Oh my goodness. Wow. Oh my God. You can see like white caps in the waves on the water in, in, oh my gosh, this is, this is mind boggling. Yeah. Holy so there crap. you go. <laughs> so, so that's the difference. Uh, yeah. Look at, yeah, okay. if you want to know the difference between how much detail you get with a polar orbiting satellite and a geostationary orbiting satellite, look at that picture of Landsat 8 passing over the eye of Ian right before it made landfall, and then look at the GOES data, the GOES East data at the same time. That was Rob Eicher, an assistant professor of meteorology at Embry-Riddle and a freelance meteorologist. I'll post a link to that stunning satellite image on our website. Visit wmfe.org slash are we there yet. Just ahead, predicting space weather from solar flares to auroras. That's ahead on Are We There Yet here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. We're talking about the weather, but now in space. 
The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration monitors space weather from solar flares to auroras using a slew of space-based observatories. Here to talk more about those efforts and why we should care about off-planet weather is Rob Steenberg. He's the acting lead of NOAA's Space Weather Forecast Office, and he begins the conversation explaining just what his office tracks. Okay, well, the three things that we tend to focus on uh, in space weather forecasting include uh, geomagnetic storms, radio blackouts, and solar particle events, or space radiation storms. Um, and these all have their origins at the sun, uh, so space weather is focused on events on the sun uh, that have an impact here on Earth. Uh, so, for instance, a solar flare can cause uh, disruptions of radio communications on high frequencies from about 3 to 30 megahertz. Um, the sun can unleash big blobs of plasma that can travel through space and interact with Earth's magnetic field. And that causes geomagnetic storming. And from there, you can see auroras. Um, and then finally, the, uh, the space radiation events can accompany uh, those flares and CMEs and uh, change the radiation environment in space. How do you actually track these things? I've got to assume the same satellites that uh, your colleagues at NOAA use to track and forecast terrestrial weather events uh, aren't pointing in the right direction. <laughs> how, do you, how do you have to look at these space events? Yeah, well, that's, that's actually pretty interesting because a lot of people aren't aware that the, the GOES spacecraft that we use and that your uh, listeners are probably used to for seeing you know, images, cloud imagery and things like that, also have sensors on them for space weather. Oh, really? And they're actually pointed the other direction. <laughs> that, that makes sense. <laughs> so they, they live in geosynchronous orbit, and they give us uh, indications of uh, what's happening in geosynchronous orbit in terms of the particle environment and the magnetic environment. And it also uh, they also collect uh, information on x-rays. So that's how we measure the solar flares. And uh, we also have imagery now uh, from the GO spacecraft. Uh, so extreme ultraviolet imagery that, that shows us the sun in different wavelengths. And we use that kind of as a diagnostic tool to help us understand what's happening on the sun. Mm -hmm. I know that there has been a few NASA missions as of late to study the sun. There's this kind of resurgence of, of heliophysics. Um, I've covered a few of these launches, like the Parker Solar Probe. Um, is, is that kind of helping you understand what's happening at the sun and creating these these space weather events? Are you, are you getting a better sense of, of the sun's behavior because of this? We're learning a lot more. That's absolutely true. Um, and, you know, I came on board as a space weather person uh, from the terrestrial world uh, as a meteorologist um, a little over a decade ago. And um, I just happened to... Uh, be around when the Solar Dynamics Observatory, for instance, came uh, online and started providing data. And from that, yes, you know, we've learned a tremendous amount. Uh, some of the newer missions, you know, it, it'll take a while for uh, researchers to sift through that data and kind of extract things because there, there are things that form kind of foundational knowledge about the sun. And then there are, are things that people discover that actually, um, you know, could also have applications. So, you know, we benefit as forecasters either way. We, we either understand uh, the thing that produces weather more. Um, and if, you know, if we're fortunate, maybe uh, some new tools come out of that. Uh, 
Uh, and so that's, that's the exciting part of it. Um, and we work, yeah, we work closely with NASA. They've been, uh, you know, uh, core partners from the beginning, helping us, uh, get data. Um, and for a long time, um, that was a lot of the only source of, uh, imagery, for instance, that we could get, um, just recently, uh, you know, with the addition of the, uh, SUVI uh, instruments to the GO spacecraft and the uh, placement of a NOAA spacecraft at the L1 Lagrange point uh, to measure solar wind and give us that information. Um, you know, it's, it's been a shift. Uh, research for research spacecraft, um, you know, they have their mission, they do, they're doing research. Um, if we're lucky, we get kind of a feed of data. And uh, the problem is, though, they're not, um, they're not considered operational. And what separates those two is the operational uh, missions you know, have around-the-clock support and uh, backups. And that's for space weather forecasting. That's the kind of uh, redundancy and, and uh, robustness that we need. You know, you can think about it in terms of hurricane forecasting. You need... You definitely need that imagery, and if something goes wrong with the spacecraft, you need something else there to, to continue to provide that imagery. Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, hurricane forecasting. I'm, I'm wondering if there's some sort of predictability to these space weather events. Like, you know, living here in Florida, I'm very well aware of when, you know, tropical storm season is. Are there particular seasons that the sun goes through where there's increased solar activities that, that you can, you know, prepare for or, or be ready for, or is the sun just kind of on its own? It does, it does what it wants when it wants to. Well, the sun does go through cycles. Um, there's a period of higher activity and more sunspots. And we call, you know, when, when we approach that, that's solar maximum. Um, and then we get into a period of uh, fewer to no sunspots um, and relatively quiet activity and there. That's solar minimum. And that cycles around 11 years on average. And so unlike hurricane season where, uh, you know, you're looking at that every year, we're looking at an 11 year cycle. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's a, uh, it's a double edged sword because it gives, you know, as forecasters, it gives us time to prepare um, during solar minimum for the next solar maximum. And we can work on tools and techniques and try and integrate new research into what we do. Uh, the downside is it's a lot of time for people to forget and for people to retire and, and things to change hands. So our our education process, uh, both for the public, um, for legislators, for everybody, is is continual. Because um, you have to remind them that, yeah, the sun is a thing and it, it can do stuff and probably want to know about it. Um, so we have, uh, you know, we have, we have uh, you know, some efforts uh, in that regard. But uh, yeah, so 11 years and then um, as far as predictability, that solar cycle prediction is a, is a, um, that's a specialized area and there are people who, who uh, really devote their lives to understanding that and trying to make those predictions. Um, in my office, we focus on much shorter timescales, typically one to three days. Um, and then maybe out 27 days, uh, because the sun actually rotates and it rotates faster at the equator than at the poles. But on average, it's 27 days for, to make a complete rotation. So you can see a large sunspot 
if it's uh, big enough and, and uh, consistent enough, it, it, it'll come around. You know, you'll see it again 27 days later after it rotates off the right side of the sun. So that's that's exciting. But uh, yeah, so our our time scales are shorter. Um, we do probabilistic forecasts for the flares uh, and for the particle events because we can't do uh, deterministic things. I have no way of giving you like the equivalent of a tornado warning uh, for a flare. It just happens when we see it. It already happened eight minutes ago because that's how long it takes to travel. You know, the X-rays to travel from the sun to our sensors. Um, so we issue alerts for those and alert just tells people, hey, this thing happened. Well, finally, Rob, you said you mentioned, you know, your office will um, issue alerts for these events that are happening. Um, these things sound kind of scary uh, when you tell me their names. Um, is this something that everybody on Earth needs to be worried about? Or are these these solar space weather events um, only concerning to those who may operate satellites in space or astronauts on the International Space Station. Who, who should be worried? Where, how, how anxious should I be about these things? <laughs> well, that's, that's a great question. And uh, so much of the time, you know, you can see headlines a lot of times that uh, say all sorts of stuff that, that just sounds like the apocalypse. But you figure that, you know, the sun's been up there for years, um, quite a few, and uh, we've been dealing <laughs> with this as a planet for a long time. Um, and, and we're still here. So my general suggestion to folks is, you know, don't, don't sweat it. You know, that's why we're here. We're here to help, um, you know, alert people of the uh, presence of these things and mitigate the, you know, help, help the people who have to deal with it, mitigate the uh, impacts. Uh, so for instance, as you mentioned, satellite operators, you know, they may need to do some things, power grid operators, if we're expecting a geomagnetic storm, we're in contact with them. Um, you know, letting them know uh, our best expectations about what the storm's going to look like and how long it'll last, and then they can take measures to uh, mitigate those effects. And that's that's really uh, what we do. So, if everything's working well, um, you know, people on the ground shouldn't worry about it. You know, it's not a it's it's exciting, it's interesting for for a scientist. It's it's amazing. You know, it's amazing to be to watch and see all this but you know we have a magnetic field we have an atmosphere we have a lot of stuff protecting us here on earth so spaceship earth is pretty robust um the thing most people uh in the general public uh, they're really interested in um uh, the aurora you know that's our biggest you know when our web page gets hits that's what they're looking for they want to see the aurora so now the chances of it making it down to florida are relatively low uh, unless we have a very, very big storm. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so generally people will go north, you know, and, and look for that. And and we'll get calls from people in the northern tier states and looking to say, hey, you know, the storm is coming, might bring the aurora down here. So it's pretty exciting. I mean, that's that's really the only uh, manifestation, physical manifestation that, that people can get their arms around. You know, you can see it. Um, nobody's outside dodging protons or or shielding them their eyes from solar flares, you know, it's, 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 it's a different kind of thing. So most of the people who are very interested in following this stuff daily are the folks who have some, uh, some interest because of spacecraft or, or human spaceflight or, 
um, you know, like I said, here on the ground power grids or amateur radio operators are interested in the state of the ionosphere, which is affected by those solar flares. That was Rob Steenberg, acting lead of NOAA's Space Weather Forecast Office. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Get on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. More of our space coverage is available on our website, WMFE.org slash space. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.